I've been wondering, do you sometimes feel that this world is uh, off kilter? Something significant is missing, isn't it? It's like as good as this world can be at times, and we all have good days, right? Some people have more than others, but we all have good days. But even on those best days, it seems like there's something missing. There's something broken. We all sense it. But what is that? What is this, what is this heart ache that we all feel, that we often live with this dull ache in our souls? And yet sometimes it's not just a dull ache. Sometimes it's, it's very sharp pain, almost overwhelming, as we all sense there's something wrong, there's something missing. J.R.R. Tolkien, of Lord of the Rings fame. I know we have Lord of the Rings fans here today. You know the professor Tolkien wrote other things as well. And one of the things he wrote captures my interest. He mused this, we all long for Eden and we are constantly glimpsing it, our whole nature at its best and least corrupted. Its gentlest and most human is still soaked with a sense of exile. Chew on that for a while. We all long for Eden. Our whole nature is soaked with a sense of exile. We all long for Eden. I think having a more clear picture of our past, our original home, the Garden of Eden, will help us understand more clearly how we live in this present world. <coughs> and I think it'll stir in us this holy longing, this holy homesickness for the Eden yet to be revealed, the new heavens and the new earth. Our original home, the Garden of Eden, was lost. The garden, the paradise yet to be revealed, the new heavens and the new earth is yet to come. And we now find ourselves living in this era between the gardens. Understanding where we started will help us understand where we are and where we're going. So please join me, if you will, in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. And as we look at this passage today of Genesis 2, 4 through 15, I would like to focus on three things. The garden of creation, the gardener of creation, and the God of creation. As you turn to Genesis 2, look at verse 4 for a minute. Now, there's an interesting phrase there that uh, you're going to hear in our series of Genesis. It says in the beginning of verse 4, it says, these are the generations. These are the generations. That phrase is going to show up ten times throughout the book of Genesis. So if you were to study the book of Genesis from chapter 1 to chapter 50, if you were to go through all of those, you would find this phrase, these are the generations, ten times. 
And that phrase serves as kind of like a heading. Uh, I think of our modern books in English, we have chapters, and it's kind of like that in some ways. And if you look at the other nine, they all are followed by like genealogies. These are the generations, and what follows is, okay, these are the descendants. These are the descendants of this person, or these are the descendants of that person. This one of the ten is unique. It doesn't give a genealogy, and it's almost as if the Holy Spirit, through Moses, when he wrote the book of Genesis, is saying, these are the descendants of creation itself. <laughs> and that's where we are. That's who we are. And so we hear our story in this passage. So you follow along now in your copy of the Bible as I read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, and there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and on onyx stone were there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, and it flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We'll stop right there. And you, I'm going to leave you hanging because next Sunday, Adam Pennard has the privilege of preaching the next two verses to kind of wrap this up more, show us the direction we're going. But let's begin this morning by looking at the garden of creation. Let me ask you some real basic questions that a lot of people wonder. Was the Garden of Eden a real place? Was it a real place, or is this purely some sort of symbolic story? Well, I want you to notice what God's Word says. Moses uses some rather specific language in establishing the location of Eden, didn't he? He doesn't describe the Garden of Eden as something... How can I say this? He doesn't describe the Garden of Eden as it somehow outside of time and space. You know, we like fairy tales and myths. This story does not come across to us in the Word of God as if it's some sort of myth, somehow taken out of time and space. Neither does Moses use language as if this is somehow above time and space. And they're, especially intellectuals, they're intellectuals who try to play with the Word of God and say, well, this wasn't real historical fact, but, but you know what? It's kind of spiritual truth. It's kind of above time and space. It's, 
is this spiritual truth, but it didn't actually happen. I want to encourage you to look at the text, look at the Word of God and say, is that what we're reading? Moses isn't talking about the Garden of Eden as if it's outside of time and space. He doesn't talk about the Garden of Eden as if, as if it's above time and space. He talks about the Garden of Eden as if it's in time and space. He actually gives us locations. <laughs> he talks about the Garden being in the east. Now, some of you will remember this. Where, where were the original recipients of the book of Genesis? They were, where were they? They were in the wilderness. They were in the wilderness. They were still on the way to the promised land. So, especially compared to there in the Sinai, where the wilderness was, this was somewhere east of there. Where east of there? I don't know, but east of there. <laughs> in verses 10 through 14, we, we read these already. In verses 10 through 14, there's this curious description of four rivers. One river that broke into four. And they actually have names and places. Now, now, two of these are names that have come down through history, and they're still there, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, but the other two, the Pishon and, and the Gihon, we don't know what rivers those are today. Uh, he describes them. He describes them in particularity, and yet here in the 21st century, we don't know where these two are. And let me just say this, that things have happened since then. Names change. Uh, the curse came after the Garden of Eden, right? And we don't know what effect that had on the rest of creation. And when we get to chapter 9, we're going to read about what we call Noah's flood. Boy, that shortchanged topography, didn't it? And so I would just encourage us, don't get too bent out of shape trying to figure out where these are. I mean, I, I read a lot of pages recently of trying to figure these out. And I finally says, you know what, that's not the point of the story. And so I don't know where these two rivers are, and maybe someday we'll find out, but not today. <laughs> so the Garden of Eden was a real place in time and space. It had a place. It was in history. So what was it like? What was the garden even like? Well, it was an ideal place, wasn't it? It was ideal physically. And just think about that with me. Think about the Garden of Eden as best we can as fallen people, as people who never were there in its unfallen condition. But think what it would have been like. It would have been ideal physically. The architect was God himself. The builder was God himself. It doesn't get any better than that. And so whatever God designed without sin, without the curse, it would have been perfect. Perfect physically. It was apparently warm. And you say, how do you know that, Larry? Well, as we'll find out, Adam and Eve didn't wear clothes at the beginning. So maybe it was kind of tropical. They didn't have to have clothes to keep warm. It was well watered. Now, we're reading this as 21st century, most of us here, Midwesterners, and I think it loses some of its punch. But if you were people living in the desert of the Sinai, and Moses says the Garden of Eden was this wonderfully well watered place, you can almost hear some of the people going, Oh, that sounds so nice. That sounds so nice. Well watered. And, and this recounting of what God made the Garden of Eden to be like, that it was this beautiful place that was well watered. These, these rivers, apparently there hadn't been rain yet. There wasn't rain until Noah's day. 
And so God watered the earth by some other means. Uh, the word here um, sometimes could be translated like a mist. I think the ESV uses that word, like a mist that comes up out of the ground. Uh, sometimes it actually means like flood. And it could be maybe something like the older Israelites would remember back in their time of enslavement in Egypt where the river Nile would often rise up and overflood the fields and then go back down and that flooded water over the fields would water it so it would be productive. It could have been something like that. We don't know. But the point is that God was giving a place that was well watered. He was so kind that way. There were plants there for the gardener to tend cultivated edible plants now some of you might some of you that are detail people were thinking well wait a minute didn't in chapter 1 I think it's verse 11 the third day of creation didn't God already make the plants and yet he's here on the sixth day when Adam was made um, it says there were no plants like this and the best explanation you look at the words that Moses uses there uh, there and we this is true in our day too there are plants that don't need cultivation if you drive out through the countryside, you'll see places that no farmers tending, nobody's tending the yard. Things are just growing wild. You don't have to cultivate those plants. They just kind of grow. And, and yet there are other plants that will not grow unless they're cultivated. Uh, I've had a small garden most of our married years, and, and I know I've got to work my garden <laughs> or it's not going to produce. And apparently Moses is alluding to those kinds of plants that God reserved certain edible plants for this day of his image bearer being made so that he could tend it, he could be the gardener, and God himself would water it. But there were these plants that provided edible food, and there were trees. And again, if you're an Israelite in the wilderness, you're going, trees, that sounds wonderful. Trees were so highly valued to people that lived in arid lands, not that the Eden was arid, but the Israelites were in an arid place. The trees represent uh, fruitfulness. They represent um, longevity of a plant, that a tree will last a long time. These trees uh, gave fruit. Did you notice in verse 9 it says they were good for food? Garden with, the Garden of Eden was this place richly supplied by God. It was a place of plenty. It was also an ideal place aesthetically. Not just productively, but to the eye. It was beautiful aesthetically. In verse 9, he talks about these trees being pleasant to the sight. And you think about that. There, there was no violence. Beauty beyond our current comprehension. I mean, you might try to wonder sometimes. I've seen artists trying to depict Eden, and I appreciate their efforts. I really do. But as much as we try, we probably cannot fathom the depths of the beauty of what God made. Someday, on the new earth, I think we'll see it. But it was a beautiful place. It was ideal aesthetically. It was an ideal place spiritually. We just sang a song about, till we sin no more. Any of the rest of you sing that with a longing in your heart, like, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? that we're not going to be sinning ourselves anymore, we're not going to be offending our Heavenly Father anymore, we're not going to be hurting other people with our sin, we're not going to be experiencing the pain of other people sinning against us. Don't you long for that? That's part of that homesickness. That's part of that feeling of exile, of Eden, that our origins are in the Garden of Eden, our ancestor Adam and Eve, and God left that 
longing in our hearts, even in this era between the gardens, that we know it's not right to live in a sinful world. God will fix it one day when Jesus comes back. But the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve sinned, had no sin. There was no conflict with God. There wasn't even any uncomfortable distance with God, no awkwardness. And, and you, read, you read the book of Genesis, these opening chapters, and, and I think, this is my opinion, but I think when you get to chapter 3, verse 8, where after Adam and Eve had sinned, and it talks about God coming to walk in the garden in the cool of the evening, I just have a hunch that wasn't the first time God walked in the garden in the cool of the evening. That it kind of implies that God did this. That God would come and he would visit the garden so he could spend time with the gardener. That Adam was his image bearer. Adam was the prince that the great king had made in his own image. And that God would come to the garden and fellowship with the man and the woman. And in that sense, in that sense, the Garden of Eden was kind of like a temple. It, it was kind of like a temple. It was where God would come and meet with man. And, and you can find imagery. You can find imagery even in the creation account that gives implication that that was very intentional. When Moses wrote the book of Genesis, he was intentional by the Spirit's prompting to paint this picture for us of Eden being like a temple, a place where God would come and meet with people. When he talks about those precious stones and gold in that land, um, talking about the river, well, those are things you find in the temple. And as we'll see in a few minutes, Adam was put in charge of the garden not only to, to till it, to work it, but to keep it, to guard it the way. And that word that's used there in Hebrew about guarding the temple, keeping the temple, keeping the garden, is the same word that's used for priests and Levites. The same word used for priests and Levites when they were charged to keep the tabernacle. They were put in charge to make sure no evil person intrudes. They were to guard the tabernacle and later the temple. And Adam was given that charge even here. We'll see that more in a few minutes. So what about these two trees? People are wondering, what about these two trees? That, that, that captivates our curiosity probably more than the rivers, right? Well, there, there's these two trees in the middle of the garden. One's called the tree of life. The tree of life is mentioned a number of times in the Bible. Here in Genesis, it's mentioned in the book of Proverbs. And we're going to find it again in the book of Revelation. And apparently this tree symbolized God's grace in giving life itself. And Adam and Eve had freedom to eat of that tree. But what is this other tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? What does that mean? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I have read a number of attempts to explain that. But I think I, think I have a hunch what it means. <laughs> Think about the title, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It doesn't say the tree of good and evil. And I've heard people, you know, misname the tree, and then they get into all kind of tizzies. It's not the tree of good and evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One of the best explanations I've read is that the tree of, knowledge, the, tree of the knowledge of good and evil refers to 
the ability to make independent moral decisions, the ability to be morally autonomous, the right to make independent decisions about what is right and what is wrong, what is true, what is false, that right to independently, without leaning on someone else explaining things, the right to make an independent judgment of what is true, what is false, what is right, is wrong, that right belongs to God and to God alone. And so Adam and Eve as image bearers, Adam and Eve as creatures, they were excluded from eating of that tree. Now, let me ask you a question, and, and you're going to have to think through this with me. Why is that? Why would God reserve the right only to himself of being the determiner of what is right and what is wrong, of being what is true, what is false? Well, let me ask you a question. What would be required to be 100% right 100% of the time in determining what is true and what is false? What would be required to be 100% accurate, 100% of the time, in determining what is moral and what is immoral? What would be required to be 100% right, 100% of the time? You would have to be omniscient. Omniscient is a big word that means you'd have to know everything. And so to be the determiner, to be the decider, to be the one who proclaims, this is true, this is false. This is right, this is wrong. To have the ability to make that assessment 100%, 100% of the time, you would have to know all things at all times. You would have to be all-knowing. You would have to be omniscient. Even Adam and Eve before the fall, even before Adam and Eve fell into sin, they were not omniscient. They did not know all things. They were creatures. They were at that point sinless creatures, but they were nevertheless finite. They didn't know everything all the time. Now, we're not like pre-fall Adam and Eve. We're fallen creatures. I'm a fallen Larry. Let me just ask you. Have you ever looked back on some decision you made? Even a big decision of something that you thought was true, and you find out later it wasn't true. Or that something was wrong and you find out later it wasn't wrong? Or have you ever made a moral decision that you thought was the best decision at that time and then later you think, what in the world was I thinking? Have you ever been in that situation? You don't have to raise your hand, it's all of us. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. Every one of us, every one of us has some point in our life, or the older we get many times in our lives, look back and said, why did, why was I... Why did I do that? Why did I think that was the right thing to do? Why did I think that was a truth? Why did I think that was false? Because our knowledge is limited. And so God's telling his, even his sinless image bearers, you're not allowed to eat of that tree because I alone, as God, as the omniscient God, as a God who is both omniscient and omnipotent, all-knowing and all-powerful, I and I alone can accurately make moral and truth statements 100% accurately, 100% of the time. 
Now, a word of application to all of us who are involved in the lives of children. And this is true for all the parents, all of us grandparents. If you teach Sunday school, you're a school teacher. We all have kids in our lives. And it's, we're not the first generation this has happened to, but the, the, the dimmer switch has gotten cranked up in our day that the generation growing up now is being told regularly, you need to decide for yourself what's true for you. You need to be true to yourself. Or how about this one? Follow your own heart. Do, do you see what's happening there? And it's not just the kids. It's all of us. Middle-aged people, old people. We're all told that regularly. You decide what's true for you. You be true to yourself. You determine your own identity. And what's happening is we're taking a prerogative that belongs to God alone. The God alone has both the authority and the, the ability to be the one who can determine truth, who can determine morality 100% of the time and be 100% right. God alone can do that. We don't have that ability. We're going to goof. We're going to goof really badly. Not only are we going to make mistakes, but it's an offense to the God who said, that's my role. And so whenever we're telling kids, you decide what's true for you. You decide what's right for you. Follow your own heart. Listen, my friends, we're putting a burden on the kids that they were never designed to carry. They were never designed to carry that burden. That's a God-like responsibility. Why would we tell a child, why would we tell a teenager, why would we tell another adult, carry this burden, carry this responsibility of determining truth and error all on your own, determining morality and morality on your own independently from God? It's a heavy burden that kids were never designed to carry. Adults were never designed to carry. And Adam and Eve were being graciously dealt with by God when he says, you can eat, look, I'm being generous with you. I'm being so gracious with you, Adam. I'm being so gracious with you that all these trees, I'm giving you all this good food, edible plants, trees, beautiful garden. But this tree, that's not for you, Adam. That's not for you. If you eat of it, you will die. Because eating of it would be an act of not only insolence, it would be an act of insurrection. You're trying to pull me off of my throne and take my place. You would be playing God. Don't, don't do that, Adam. You must not do that. For the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That's why, my friends, I, I won't preach a second sermon in this one, but that's why, my friends, the Bible clearly says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We start with God. We start with God. He is not only our creator, he is the definer the creator of all things, the definer of all things, he defines for us what is right and what is wrong, what is true, what is false. And that we have no right to ignore him. We have no right to go contrary to his declaration, his revelation, 
We have no right to go against his revealed character or his revealed will. Now, let's talk about the gardener, okay? What's, was Adam a real person? We asked the question, was Eden a real place? Well, was Adam a real person or is he merely symbolic? Is he kind of a part of a story, a character that was invented to represent humankind? Or was he an actual historical person? Interestingly, if you study your Bible, you're going to see that in genealogies, those lists of so-and-so had so-and-so as a son, in the list of genealogies, Adam is named as a real person. As real as Abraham, or Ruth, or David. And when you read all these names in the genealogies, well-known names, some more obscure, but his name shows up as real as the other names. And I'll tell you something that convinced me that he's a real person is reading the Old Testament through New Testament eyes. How did the New Testament, how does the New Testament handle Adam? Does it handle Adam as if he's just a representative figure or is he a real historical person? The Apostle Paul in several places, uh, Romans 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul, in various letters of his, talks about Adam as a real person, a person in time and space. He does represent us, but he represents us as a real person in history. But here's the clincher for me. Jesus, Jesus talked about the first few chapters of Genesis as historical. He talked about them as historical, real people, real places, real happenings. And so, without trying to sound trite, if Jesus saw it that way, then so shall I, okay? <laughs> and let me just remind you if you say, well, I don't know, I don't know. Let me just give you another challenge if you're saying, I don't know if I can believe that Adam was a real person. If you take Adam as an historical figure out of the equation, you tell me how you're going to work through the doctrine of redemption. Because the Bible is clear that sin invaded the human race through one man a, man, a real person named Adam. And it requires a second Adam. It requires Jesus Christ, God coming as man, to reverse that. And so even the doctrine of redemption itself requires that Adam was a real person. I won't take a lot of time on this, but some of you might be curious, why is God, why is Moses here, through the Holy Spirit's prompting, writing about the creation of Adam again? Didn't he already do that in chapter 1? I mean, it's true. You read chapter 1, and God said, let us make man in our image. And then you get to chapter 2, and you're reading about God forming the first man, Adam. You're saying, why is he talking about this again? Well, if you read the two passages, and if on your Bible app or something, you could put chapter 1 and chapter 2 side by side, they... They tell the same story, but with a different emphasis. And it's like the Holy Spirit wants Moses to go back to the pinnacle of God's creation, the image bearer, the human, and tell us more about that. And so while Genesis chapter 1 is kind of the, the macro picture, God is seen as the sovereign over the whole universe, and Adam is given this position of dignity as the image bearer. You get to chapter 2, and... And it's much more personal. It's much more earthy. And, and so rather than this macro, the whole universe, God is transcendent, 
it's, it's more of the micro, that it's the Garden of Eden and God is more personal and, and Adam is actually being shaped by the very hands of God. And so they're both true, it's just different emphases, different focuses. The gardener, Adam, was specially created by the great king. It says he was formed out of dust. Um, could be the word dirt, dust. It's, it's kind of a play on words in Hebrew. The, the name Adam sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for dust or dirt. It would be like us English speakers saying, the human was made out of humus. Or if you're into sci-fi, you could say something like, the earthling was made out of earth. You know, it, it's a play on words to get our attention that he was of the earth. And he was given, in, he was given individual formation by the creator himself. There was this decisive, deliberate shaping of Adam by God, that Adam was handmade by God. He was not the product of lower forms of life. He was not the product of some evolutionary process. He was made by the very hands of God there in creation. And Moses says that God puffed into his nostrils the breath of life. <laughs> that is so personal that it was God himself who gave this dirt, shaped like a man, gave it life. And the man was not only specially created by the great king, but he was specially commissioned by the great king. He was told to work the garden. And that's a word that would be used of someone who was tilling the soil. Adam was like a prince, and he was given the charge to take care of, to guard, the, to work the Garden of Eden on behalf of the owner, the great king, God himself. And he was to be productive that way. I don't know what your picture has been of Eden or what your picture will be of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. But neither the beginning nor the end, not the first paradise nor the last paradise, is a picture of um, laziness. We're not going to be sitting around in the shade sipping lemonade. Adam was not sitting under some tree chewing on a pomegranate. <laughs> he was working. He was made to work. Work is not a result of the curse. And I think sometimes we forget that. I mean, especially when you're having a hard day at work, right? <laughs> work is not a result of the curse. Work got harder because of the curse. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, work then on, work doesn't always work. <laughs> right? Work doesn't always work. I mean... You're trying to do something and it doesn't work. It, it, it's frustrating. It's frustrated and frustrating at times. And I think because we live in this era between the gardens and work sometimes doesn't work, we feel like work itself is wrong. It's part of the curse and it's not. Originally, work was designed by God for Adam and it was to be uh, productive. It was to be enjoyable. Adam was to tend the garden that way. But it was also charged to keep the garden, that he was given that responsibility to guard the garden. And, and I'm not going to steal Adam's thunder or when we get to chapter 3, Pastor Mark's thunder, but, but if you think about that, Adam was designed by God, commissioned by God, to not only work the garden, but to, to keep it, to guard it. He should have kept the serpent out. He should have kept the serpent out. He should have protected his wife. 
from the serpent, and he didn't. And instead of Adam keeping the serpent out because of the seduction of the serpent, it was Adam and Eve themselves that got kicked out. And so we need the second Adam to come, Jesus Christ, to reverse all that. And so now the God of creation. We've looked at the garden of creation, the gardener of creation, and now the God of creation. As we read this passage of Genesis chapter 2, there are various attributes of God that are, are clear to us. I'm just curious. You don't have to answer these out loud, but are there any attributes of God that just kind of stood out to you as we read Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 15? Anything like, wow, look at God. Any attribute of God come into your mind? I, I kind of made a list. One is that he's perfect. He made everything just right. He's gracious. Isn't he gracious? We were singing of his mercy and his grace earlier today. God is amazingly gracious that he provided for his image bearers everything they needed. He's generous that way, isn't he? He's sovereign. He's the one who gives direction. He's not only the creator God. He is the determiner God, the definer God. He gives direction. He's sovereign in that way. And we don't want to miss this attribute of God that he's very relational, that he made Adam very personally, forming him, hand-making him, and then designing the garden for the gardener. God designed the garden for the gardener, and he put him in there, uniquely designed by God. We humans, we sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, to borrow C.S. Lewis's term, we sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we were designed to be in relationship with God as no other created thing can be. And we need, we need to politely, we need to humbly, politely resist this um, cultural paradigm we're living in that humans are just another animal, another part of creation. Humans were designed by God uniquely. We, we have a unique role that no animal has, no plant has, no inanimate object has. We were designed to be mirrors of God's glory, to be reflectors of God in ways that nothing else can be. And we were made to relate to God. So we were made to enjoy God, to enjoy his grace, to enjoy his fellowship, to enjoy admiring his greatness and his grace. And we were designed also to uh, worship God and to serve him. This story of Genesis chapter 2 tells us a lot about God and I better keep moving here, but it also tells us some things about us. It tells us that we were dependent on God. We always have been. That he is the creator, he's the designer, and so we are dependent on him, not only for life itself, but we are dependent on God for his explanation of life, his definition. And I think as uh, 21st century Westerners, this is a, a long-standing theme that we need to keep reminding each other of. We keep need to reminding ourselves of. That God is not only the creator of all things, he's the definer of all things. And so if I'm going to understand life, if I'm going to understand myself, if I'm going to understand what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong, what's important, what's not important, I need to lean into him. I need to lean into him. His character is revealed will. Because he is the one who will help us understand what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false, what's important, what's not important. And so in that sense, this story tells us not only our dependence on God, but our accountability to God. That if we claim our independence, 
If we say, I, I don't want God telling me what to do. I'm going to chart my own course in life. I'm going to identify myself. I'm going to determine my own truth. By the way, I saw a t-shirt one time that made me smile. It said, you have a right to your own opinion, but you don't have a right to your own truth. <laughs> Think about that one. But this story also points us to our future. One day, God will reverse the effects of the fall. He'll restore the earth to be like Eden again, maybe better than Eden. I want to read to you from the very last chapter of the Bible. This is Revelation chapter 22. So we're reading the opening pages of the Bible. What do the last pages of the Bible say? As I read Genesis, excuse me, Revelation 22, listen to the wording. Pay attention to the imagery. And see if you think, oh, that reminds me of the first pages of the Bible. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me, this is John writing, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, <clears throat> through the middle of the street of the city. <clears throat> also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer, no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night and the night will be no more. They will, they will, they will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be, be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Did you notice that? Adam and Eve were made to reign under the smile of God and for the smile of God. They were to reign, to rule this earth. And it says right here in this passage that that's where we're headed is as redeemed people. And what was lost, our home that was lost, Eden, is promised to us in the future, the new heavens and the new earth. That should help us navigate as we go through this era between the gardens. Life in this era between the gardens can be hard. It can be difficult. It can, it can be uh, discouraging at times. But if we have our eyes fixed, that it won't always be this way. That God has promised that there will be a restoration. That gives us hope. That, gives us, that prompts perseverance in our hearts to stay faithful. That faith in God and his promises enables us to be faithful. So we keep our eyes on that day. Some of you here today might still be thinking, I'm not, God's not going to tell me how to live my life. It's my life. I'll live my life as I want. Let me just say, and we'll see this more in our study of the opening chapters of Genesis, if claiming your independence from God does not give freedom, it does not give freedom. It doesn't make life easier to keep God out of your life. Claiming independence from God actually makes life harder. And I was reading, interestingly, the book of Proverbs. In chapter 30, I don't know how I missed this before, but listen as I read Proverbs chapter 30 about how this wise man, now wise man, talks about life away from God. He says, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God. I'm worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor, have, nor I the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? 
What is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So I want to lovingly challenge you today if you are still on this course in life or you think, I'll live my own life. That road, my friend, does not bring peace. It does not bring freedom. It brings frustration and pain. That's not what you were designed for. You were designed to be a worshiper and obeyer of God himself. And I encourage you today to turn from that path you're on and turn to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he will give you grace.